Broadcasting from our office in Buffalo, New York, this is the Arrive Podcast, the comprehensive guide to U.S. immigration law designed especially for our Canadian neighbors. I'm Jeremy Richards, your host, along with my co-host and business partner, Christine Jerusik. We bring decades of immigration law experience helping Canadians to live and work in the United States. We're here to simplify the complexities of the U.S. immigration process, answer your questions, and provide insights that only experienced professionals can provide. In each episode, Christine and I will delve into legal concepts, share personal narratives, and bring you insightful conversations, all designed to educate, enlighten, and empower you as you navigate the U.S. immigration law landscape. Whether you're preparing to move to the United States for work, studies, love, or if you're just intrigued by U.S. immigration law, the Arrive podcast is your resource for making the journey clearer, simpler, and more approachable. So we invite you to come on this journey with us. Listen to the Arrive podcast, follow us on your favorite podcast platforms, and subscribe to the latest episodes as they are released. And if you find what we share helpful, don't keep it to yourself. Feel free to share it with others who might also benefit from the content. Our mission is to assist our friends from the North in successfully navigating their way to live and work in the United States. So sit back, tune in, and get ready to arrive. This is the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. Welcome back. So today we are going to answer several of the questions that we've received from our listeners. There's a place on our website where you can go and you can submit a question and you can ask for us uh, to answer it on the show. We've been trying to get people that want to call in live so far, no takers on that. But hey, if you're out there listening and you want to join us live, we'd love to have you and, and answer your question live on the show. But we do have questions that were submitted by listeners uh, that... Uh, wanted their questions answered. So we're going to address some of those questions that we've received recently and give them the answers to their questions. So the first question that that we're going to answer today, let's start with the question. Hi, what happens if I get a TN visa? I'm currently on a TD visa. So a TN visa is the primary visa holder. A TD is, is a dependent. So here a spouse would get a TD. And my husband later gets an H-1B. He has a TN currently and has been on the H-1B visa lottery for a couple of years. The idea is that he pulls me in with him to get the H-1B for a spouse. But will I still be able to work for the employer that has me with a TN? Do I have to quit while switching to the other visa status? So there's multiple questions in here. So we have the question about the TN, can you go from a TN to an H-1B based on your spouse, I think is the first major question in here. So you can go from TN to H-1B, but you can't get an H-1B as a spouse. You're going to get an H-4 visa as the dependent visa for H-1Bs. So kind of like this TN, spouse is on a TD. Well, if she wants to follow her husband to the H-1B, she would not get an H-1B. She would get an H-4. Right, so based the, on her marriage. Yes. So the downside to the TN and the H-1B as a spouse, and I was just talking to a, a person today on a consultation about this and how messed up U.S. immigration is that not all visa classifications allow the spouse to work. It makes no sense to me. If we're going to let the spouse be here working, why can't, why can't 
the, the dependent spouse also work anyway. Right. Especially since some classifications do allow it. Yes. It makes no sense. Like if you're on an L, your spouse can work. If you're on an E, your spouse can work. If you're on a TN, no, you can't work. If you're on an HME, no, you can't work. It makes no sense. Well, you can work, but you just need your, your spouse own. Can. Well, you, you need your own. But if you're on the dependent visa, and that's right. what they're asking here. So if you're a TD no, visa holder. you can go to school and you can volunteer. But you can't work. But you can't work. H4, same as a TD, you can't work. So could you do this? Sure. But the question here, it sounds like she wants to work under his H1B. You can't do that. She would need her own independent H1B, just like she would need right. her own independent TN. And, and there is a certain point in the H1B to green card process where an H4 is eligible for work authorization. Um, that's but, the final stage of the process. But that's not what she's asking here. No. She's not asking about a green card and permanent residence. She's asking about the H-1B and the H-4. Correct. And then the other question within this question is, it sounds like she's implying that she wants to hold a TN and an H-1B at the same time. Well, that's not possible. It's not possible. Now, there are scenarios where you can hold, for example, a visitor visa as well as an H-1B visa. But it's not possible because you, I mean, that is. But the reason it's not possible is because you can't hold two statuses at once. Two similar statuses at the same time. Right. And they're both so, work visas, so you can't do that. Right. You have to choose the work visa you want. Yeah, and the exception you're talking about is someone who has a visitor visa to the United States. So, so you get a 10-year visitor visa and then in the, while you're holding that, you get work authorization in the U.S. So you can come in and work on a TN or an H-1B, but continue to hold that visitor visa. But um, you're only using one at a time. You can't use both at the same time. Correct. So you'd be admitted to the United States in one of those statuses. Yep. So the answer here is no, you can't do that. You can't hold both an H-1B and a TN simultaneously. Right. You either have one or the other. So that but she's kind work. of in a good position because she's got TN status. And if her husband moves to H1B, she doesn't need to be tied to his she's status. She's on TD now. Oh, she's on He's TD. on a TN looking to go to H1B. She, I, I thought she said that she had TN status and she was working. No? Oh. No, she thinks she's asking whether or not she's going to be able to get work status if he gets an H1B. The answer there is no. No. But then she also asks... If she could get her own TN, well, absolutely, you can get your own TN. Yep. If you qualify and you get a job offer, yes, you could get your own TN independent of your husband or your spouse. Yeah, just like she could get her own H-1B if she wanted. My other question here, and it, they didn't ask it, but I would ask them, <laughs> them yeah. if I were talking to them, is why are you doing this? Yeah, It sounds like she qualifies for a TN on her own. He's already on a TN. Why the H-1B lottery? Yeah, why bother? The h one B doesn't give you <laughs> an advantage sure. over a TN. Yeah, I'm not sure why. H1B has a six that. year limit. It, it, like the you TN, you can get at the border. There's no lottery. You can More get it immediately. Yeah, why it's, are you? It's the same process from H1B to green card it is, as it is TN to green card. Anyway, that's another question that I would ask them is why? Why don't you just stick with the TN? Yeah, but if I think the bottom line with this is if you qualify for TN status, um, and you wrote in with this question, ma'am, you should just go and apply for TN status. TN. And then the good news is that if something happens, if your husband loses his job, yep. um, you know, God forbid, um, he would be able to move to TD status on the basis of your TN and stay in the United States with you. And similarly, if something happened to your job, you would be able to move to TD status or H4 status and stay in the U.S. with him while you're looking for a new position. So it's if a couple can have their own independent statuses for work, 
um, I always rec I always recommend it. Even with those statuses that you get work authorization, if you can qualify on your own, it's always a great thing to do because you actually have a backup plan for your family. Um, in in the worst case scenario, where the job, both employers a job ends, and you could have a, both employers pursue a green card for you, right? right? One pursue for the husband, one pursue for the wife. Yeah, and then whatever one goes fastest, use that one. Yep. So if you're both working parents and you both qualify for a visa, that's usually what I would recommend. Agree. Okay, now we're going to jump to a recent client that we helped with a precarious situation. So this individual called in. They had applied for TN status on their own. And this, and we see this a lot. This individual had had, oh, I can't even remember. It was either two or three TNs previously. So it had been on TN status for a long time under a computer systems analyst and then went back to the border and tried to get another TN for the same employer and was denied. And the reason for denial was a, was actually a legitimate denial. They did their job and they did it correctly. This individual had a background in computer engineering, but for some reason was getting TNs as a computer systems analyst. And they denied because he was applying under the wrong profession. And the duties were not consistent with the computer system analyst. Oh, the that duties sounds were consistent like a with an engineer. Legitimate denial. It was. So we were able to then help circle the wagons, file an application by mail with USCIS, correct the deficiencies in the application materials, and then get the individual approved. And they now have TN status again and are able to work in the U.S. And this individual actually has further options down the road if they take advantage of it where they could potentially get... Uh, a permanent resident status in the United States through relationship with a U.S. citizen. So bad situation. We're able to rectify it through filing with USCIS after a border denial, and, and they got approved and are now working here in the U.S. So uh, sometimes Good result. we can fix it depending on how broken it is. So right. if you have had an interaction at the border, have been refused, let us know. Uh, maybe there's something we can do to help uh, fix your situation. All right, next question. This individual is asking, I've submitted all of my papers two weeks ago to the National Visa Center. How much time is it going to take to process the application for an immigrant? Okay, so this so is immigrant, immigrant visa. visa case. Um, I would have a question for this person whether or not they just submitted the application. The documents just two says weeks ago? submitted. Oh, okay. So they need to wait now until the National Visa Center documentarily qualifies the case. That means they've looked at all the paperwork and they've accepted it all. And then at that only at that point would it be in queue for a interview and transferred to the actual consulate where this person will process. So they have a bit of a wait ahead of them. So the way this process works, and we can go back to step one, is you have to file the, it, we'll, we'll use a spousal case for an example. We don't know what the situation is here, but it's an immigrant visa. So you file the I-130 for your peti petition for your foreign relative. Once that's approved, then they notify the National Visa Center or the MVC that it's been approved, and the National Visa Center will give a list of documents that you need to provide to them in order for them to then do what you just yep. said, documentarily qualify, and then forward that notification to the consulate here in Canada. We're dealing with Montreal. Yep. They'll tell Montreal, hey, this person has been documentarily qualified. Please schedule them for an interview. And then Montreal will schedule an interview and call them in. So 
if you're not yet documentarily qualified, the MVC could come back and say, oh, you some you need to submit a divorce decree. You forgot that. Or, or, right. or we want your um, full tax return or we need your um, W-2. Domicile proof. They yep. could miss something here. So we don't know what's been submitted. And the fun fact is that you may have already submitted all of this documentation to USCIS you get to submit it all again at this stage so and then a third time at the consulate <laughs> yeah, right. in person yeah it's a redundant process and right. it's frustrating so it's tough to answer this question but let's assume that everything goes perfectly that this individual submitted those documents perfectly to the mvc typically within three months the mvc is going to get back to you and documentarily qualify and you know what perfectly case. to the mvc means it means that everything is oriented in the correct way yep that the file sizes are all four the corners. exact amount of file size yep. that they want. And yet yeah, all four corners are visible and it's completely legible. So yep. yeah, they have and very all is trans specific everything's translated. All the documents meet the reciprocity schedule. Um, so if this person did it correctly on their own, they... The I-864 passes muster. Yeah, there's yeah. proof of sufficient financial support. The yeah. tax returns, the domicile. I mean... It's say, really easy to mess this up. Right. If this person submitted without an immigration lawyer, um, chances are at least one of those documents is going to need, is, is going to prevent them from becoming qualified first round. So they're probably, they should watch their email carefully for a message from the National Visa Center asking them to check back in and take a look at a message on their account to see what changes need to be made or what other documents are required. Yeah, chances of documentary qualification, if you haven't done this before, I would say are pretty slim. Yes. Very Although, slim. I mean, I have people call me sometimes that have are, are do this process on their own, but I will tell you, they're typically people that immigrated to the United States already, so they've been through this process oh, once and themselves, and they're one. petitioning yeah. for a loved one. So they are in, they're almost, you know, as experienced as someone who's starting out in immigration law and maybe an immigration lawyer because they've been through this process personally, so... Um, you know, I have seen success stories. So assuming this person submitted the correct documents, MVC reviews them, they documentarily qualify the case. Yeah. We've been seeing cases get from the MVC to interview at the consulate once you submit your documents within six months. They're and moving we're assuming, pretty quick. We're assuming they're um, processing in Canada. Yeah, we and don't know And they will be go to the is. consulate in Montreal. Um, that consulate in Montreal is the only consulate in Canada that pro processes immigrant visas. Um, but if they are in another country, um, all bets are off. So every consulate has their own timelines. Um, and so, you know, we would need to look up the current timelines for the, uh, the specific consulate in order to give that kind of accurate information. So immigrant visa cases, you deal with three agencies. And that's another thing, right? You deal with USCIS. Everyone celebrates I-130 was approved. Hey, I'm done. Nah, no, you're not. <laughs> now you got MVC and consulate. So it all depends. Uh, but typically within six months, I would say the standard case, especially here in Montreal, is going to get an interview. Yes. Okay. Another another case success story, Christine. This was yours. Um, that oh you my L one A L one A applicant. So uh, this individual is actually the owner of a Canadian business, very successful, and it was bought out by a company that had a U.S. office. Their headquarters was in the U.S. And they transferred him to the United States on an L-1 visa for intercompany transferee as a manager executive. And so he's been working in the U.S. for a while, and he decided, and his, his employer agreed, that they would petition him for a green card. Um, and so they um, hi he hired a attorney in his hometown of Montreal who helped him out with that, and it was promptly denied. 
Um, the, then he came to us. We took a look at what was done on the case. Um, and this attorney made kind of rookie mistakes with the application. Uh, it, you know, it's not something you want to really dabble in if you're not familiar with moving um, L1 to uh, green card. So we assisted him in correcting those errors, refiling the case. He was very skeptical throughout the process that we would be able to make a difference in, in what was already submitted. But um, it, it, the, it was a bit of a nuanced case, and so we made the changes that needed to be made. We refiled it, and it was uh, properly approved uh, recently, and this man is now moving on to uh, adjusting status with his spouse and child. So we're happy with that success story for that family. Yes, the, the L1E to green card process, or the EB1C green card is what it's referred to as, mm -hmm. is much more technical than people give it credit. They think that they just get this L1 and they're automatically going to get a green card now based on that. No, it, it can be much more difficult to get that approval for that second stage. And same, and that fun, card. same fun fact as the last time, all that information you file with the L1 needs to be refiled with the I-140 yep. and is re-adjudicated on a, almost a different level of scrutiny. Yeah, so, they definitely apply a higher level of scrutiny. I mean, it's frustrating on our end whenever we do this because if it's done properly in the L1 stage, it's uh, you almost are duplicating the application in the I-140 stage. But in this case, I don't think the initial one was done correctly, ended up getting approved, and then the I-140 was definitely done incorrectly. So, Was the initial L1 done at the border, or was it done by mail? Good question. I I don't recall. Because if I it was done... I believe it was at, done at the border. Yeah. So the border has... Uh, the standards that are applied by the border are yeah. different than USCIS. Yeah. So that would make a little bit of sense. And the attorney didn't take that into account when filing the I-140. So if you do an I, a border L1 and then you do a mail I-140, which you have to do, you can't do it at the border. Well, even this case, I mean, she, the, the attorney actually chose the wrong period of time to rely on with respect oh, to his work in Canada. Because experience. you have to be in a managerial or executive level position for one year in Canada. And you have to identify what 12-month period that is. It can is. be any 12 months in the preceding three years. It in, doesn't in have the to be the most recent. three years preceding his entry to the yeah. United States. And this attorney ended up choosing, and it's kind of a default sometimes. You, you default to the 12 months most before. 12 yeah, months, the, the yeah, the 12, last 12 months before they emigrated or they moved to the U.S. But that wasn't the best option here. In fact, that choosing that option disqualified this individual because he was, once the business was sold, um, took on a less managerial level position and the USCIS quickly identified that and denied that application. So you got to be careful and work with an attorney that knows what they're doing with these. Yeah, that's a great example of of reassessing and thinking outside of the box, yeah, right? Well, and that's and what I mean by like a rookie mistake. Exactly. Yeah. You have, to, you have to know what you're doing and be able to assess it and identify all potential options. So good work on that. All right, next question. My I-140 was approved. So I-140 petition is for, and when an, it's similar to an I-130 petition for alien relative, but that's filed by the employer. So an employer's petitioning for an employee. My I-140 was approved with a priority date of June 13th, 2007. We can assume a lot with a priority date like that. That's a long time ago. Which means this person is from, probably from a country with a long wait time. Uh, I am a Canadian citizen and currently reside in Canada. I have no current immigration status in the U.S. So it sounds like this was filed when they were working in the U.S. 
left the United States in 2012 and held an H-1B with the same company while I was in the country. So there's some assumptions we can make on that too. Um, if they were here from 2007 to 2012, they may have rem- H-1B? H-1B time, that not much, sounds- but they could. The petitioner company sold the assets, however, and I have been providing IT consulting services for another U.S. company uh, since 2022. I am mm. the only person working. What? So the initial petitioner sold assets? Yep. Okay. Priority date, again, is June 13th, 2007. And this is where they identify their their, their citizenship is. Country of birth. Their country of birth is India. Uh-huh. And it's an EB3. And we know the, the uh, processing times for those are quite lengthy. I would like to know if my company can help me with a green card or if I have to find a new employer and redo the perm. So. Both. So if the if the <laughs> new co- if your existing company because you have to redo the perm, not if it's the it's, so here they're oh, saying it's, not it's the, the existing, same company, but they the initial once he said it was an asset sale. He's been they've been providing IT consulting services to a U.S. company through the petitioner. Oh, from Canada though, so we need we would need to know, I can't that's a tough one to answer. Yeah, we don't I, know a lot I about that ask relationship. This person some more questions. We, like, what is that relationship there? That's unclear mm-hmm. as to whether or not that continuing relationship would qualify. But let's let's answer it both ways. So let's presume that the work is still available and that the initial petitioner is still eligible to continue on with sponsorship. Go for it. So if that's the case, if everything it's current. If it's current, then this person should, um, you know. Either consular process. Do an I two A eight I eight two four is what it's called and request consular process. Oh, because did they file it adjustment of status? Well we don't know that. Don't so know. if they if they filed it as adjustment of status, then they would need to file an I eight two four if they're gonna continue on with the same petitioner and get the case changed over to consular processing and process through the consulate in Montreal. Because <laughs> it's the only one that does immigrants. Yep. So um, that's one option. And then it, the option you answer this one, what if that petitioner is no longer eligible or the job's not available anymore with that employer? So the good thing here is that priority date can be preserved. You don't have to get back in line. Right. So if you change employers, they will have to do redo the perm process for you and do a new I-140, but you don't have to get back in line and, and start all over with a brand new priority date in 2023. You're able to use that 2007 priority date. And if you're an Indian citizen, that's a huge advantage because it allows you to stay current in your processing. So I just pulled up India's processing times in India's They're processing cases from 2012. So this individual's priority date is more than current. This person could, if they were in the U.S., let's say this individual came to the U.S. and was able to work for the same employer. Wow, those are some loud sirens. <laughs> We're on the seventh. <laughs> we're on the seventh floor, and that sounds. Like I was it's in watching our them come down the street with all their. Wow, um, so if they came into the U.S. and let's say they were able to take advantage of this remaining H-1B time, yep, then enter on the H-1B. Oh, good idea. And adjust status immediately. Yes, you could do that if mm-hmm. it's the same employer, right? Because and and the advantage to that is you're going to be able to, to adjust status, which is a much faster process than consular processing for an employment-based case. 
Yes, because you would have to do an I-824 in this case, it sounds like, which can take several months. Mm -hmm. And that's where you tell the USCIS to send your case to the consulate where you want to process. That takes a long time. So ideally, this individual would come into the U.S. under H-1B, So ideally, this was filed for adjustment of status. Let's assume that's the case and that this person has time left on their H-1B, come have another H-1B petition filed for them. By the employer, enter, enter the, the H-1B. And immediately file for adjustment. And immediately, yeah, immediately file for as adjustment. As long as that U.S. company and, and the petitioner is doing business and can show they can pay your wages and have professional level work to you for you to perform under the under the I-140 approval, mm-hmm. it has to be this substantially similar position. If that's still available, then you can act on it. If not, it's not the end of the world, but... You're going to have to redo the perm process. You're going to have to do the I-140. But once that's which approved, is, you can immediately again file right, for which adjustment. It is, is a lot shorter process than waiting for how many years? Uh, From 2007? 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> or two, well, their priority is 2007. The current's 2012, but still that's 11 years. So yeah. you'd be immediately, you'd immediately be able to file for adjustment. So. There's a lot here that we would need to unpack talking to True. this individual. True, because but if there they are filed some potential this consular processing and haven't been keeping their case open, that could, could be an issue. It. Yeah. So there are some potential there depending on the exact details uh, of the situation. But uh, that priority date could potentially be preserved, which would, is huge, especially if you're born in India. Priority date is a big thing. Yeah. All right. Another case success. So this was your, it was a marriage-based case? Oh, yeah, my marriage-based case. So we had a couple, Canadian-U.S. couple, and uh, they started off with the consular processing route, but then the husband, who was the Canadian citizen, got a job in the U.S., and so he came into the U.S. on a TN. Um, We helped him with that, um, and he was working on the TN while uh, they decided to change the process from consular processing to adjustment of status. Now they said, hey, we're just going to stay in the U.S. and adjust status. At this point, I'm on my TN, I can continue to work while I'm going through this and we'll just sit tight and and do that. So we filed the application. Um, But this individual's spouse was not working. The U.S. citizen, she was a um, a homemaker, stay-at-home mom, um, took care of the family, which is, I shouldn't say not working. That's more work than working outside (laughs) the home. Don't tell my wife that. (laughs) I've been there myself, so it's a lot of work. Um, So, But she didn't have any U.S. source income, let's say, other than her husband's income. Um, and so, and they wanted to address the um, financial responsibilities without having to go to friends and family members. In fact, I don't think they had anybody that they knew that was in a position to act as a joint sponsor. So, and a joint sponsor has to be a U.S. permanent resident or U.S. citizen. Right. So, so they didn't have anybody in a position to act as a joint sponsor who made sufficient income. Um, and this gentleman made more than enough to support his family. So we were able to... Um, obtain a letter from his U.S. employer that stated that he was going to continue to receive that income. He would be, they would continue to employ him in that position once the green card was approved. Um, and USCIS accepted that as proof that his employment would continue. And we were able to use the income of the intending immigrant rather than the U.S. citizen to qualify that family. Um, and, and so now he's here, he's got his green card and uh, no need, more need for the TN and everything went smoothly with that. But um, just so you know, a lot of employers don't like giving that letter. So sometimes it can be difficult to get one. It's not a, the answer for everybody. Um, 
But if it's approached properly and you get the correct letter, it's it's a way to address the I-864 in those situations. And I will say that most people in this immigration process overlook the I-864 affidavit of support. They rely heavily on the bona fides, right? Is this marriage real? The evidence that they're in a real relationship. But most of these cases get denied on this I-864, because people either don't complete it properly, don't submit the right supporting evidence, and don't don't really understand the affidavit of support. And so these can get very technical. And, and I know I always think back to that one case I had where they came in. It was a walk-in, and um, they just walked in off the street, and the wife was crying because they had done everything correctly. So they thought she'd come in on a fiancé visa. They filed the application to adjust status once they got married here in the U.S. And they'd been on this years-long process to get her here. And the case was denied because she checked the wrong box yeah. on the I-864. Like, literally, I looked through the application. Everything else was correct. The wrong box was checked. And that was a very harsh result. So it always gives me pause for thought when I'm reviewing them. You know, everything needs to be right here or else we could have a bad result. Yeah. All right. Next question. Now, this person has been submitting questions to oh, us, wow. various. They have three questions. Submitted three questions. They're all the same, but they all have a little bit uh, a different angle and it's on all the, the same, same person, question. huh? All the same person. All, were they done all recently or over time? Over the last couple months. Okay. So but This is kind of urgent for them then. They must really want to answer this. All right. So I'll start with this one. Um, I'm trying to determine which one to, okay, we'll start with this one. We are Canadian citizens living in Toronto. Our daughter lives in the United States. She's a single mother with a newborn child. We visit her as often as we can, but apparently we are limited to 180 days. Correct. As a visitor, it's typically 180 day max. Can we extend our visit limit by filing for a tourist visa on form DS-160 or can we just ask for an extension by filing form I-539? And I'm going to keep reading because uh, they add some more details of stuff that happens. This is actually an interesting scenario. So same individual. Um, so the, quest question the, one was DS-260 versus I-539. How do we extend our visitor okay. visa to be with our daughter and our grandchild? All right, good question. And the next one, apparently the, the husband... The son-in-law? The son-in-law son passed away. Oh, wow. And they've since had a grandchild. She's alone and needs help. Can we stay beyond 180 days? Again, the 180-day question. Then... So that question see. was just whether they can stay beyond the 180 days? Essentially, yep. Okay, so that ties into their first question. How are they going to do that? And this one adds another layer on top of the same question. They're asking about the six-month stay limit, but how do exits and re-entries impact that? Does it reset that 180-day clock, or is it cumulative for the year, adding up to 180 days each year? What is the maximum time we could stay in the U.S. as a Canadian? So very good okay. question. Yeah, good question for Canadian visitors. So 180-day rule, how's that work? Um, well... It, it works in a way that you're only allowed to stay for six months in the U.S. So you have to, you know, if you think of it this way, you need to spend more time in Canada than you're spending in the United States, okay? 
Um, you know, the snowbird rule, like every, every six months, you need to go back home and stay in Canada for six months. The resetting of the clock is one I hear a lot. People, um, and, and, you know, I kind of blame the border officers for this a little bit too, because they're not super careful when they're admitting Canadians. Um, Rolling the dice. Well, they, you know, Canadians show up at the border. We're not the biggest threat in the world. Um, you know, we're coming back in and we, hey, maybe we've been here for a few months went home for back to Canada for a couple of weeks and we want to come back into the United States for a few months. The border officers aren't very diligent in my experience in checking out the travel history and doing the math. And I don't blame them. It's not their job. It's up to and us as Canadians to keep track of our travel. Right. Yeah. Um, so that next trip, they might admit you for six months again, even though you've got a few months trip already within your 12 month look back period. So um, one of the questions we get a lot is that is that 12 months reset on the first of the year. When is it reset? It's never reset. It's a, it's a look back period. So look back today. But, to the, but your period of stay is reset. That's where it gets kind of confusing, right? Because right? right. if you leave the country and like you said, and a border officer readmits you, they could readmit you for another six months. Mm-hmm. And that happens all the if time. If you stayed here six months, left for a day and came back, well, theoretically, if, they want to admit you for another six months, they can, and you could stay another six months. Right. But technically speaking... If they catch it, they're not going to do that, though. Right. Most of the time, they're going to say, no, you were just here for six months. You need to go back to Canada for a little while. Then we'll let you back in later. So could it happen? Sure. Yeah, but could. the rule You're really gambling. is that... And then the next time you come in, if they see you were here for six months, left for a day, and came in for six months again, and then left... You're going to have a you hard a time. Yeah. They're going to ask you to stay in Canada for, for a long time. Yeah. So for if at you least like to another vi- six yeah. months before they would admit you again. So um, you have vacation properties or whatever it is. You don't want to mess with that. Well, and you, you know, think of your obligations to Canada as well. Right. So if you're receiving health care in Canada yep. and benefits in Canada, these kind of things um, will, will um, be, you'll become ineligible for them at, as you spend time in the United States and then there's taxation issues as well. So, um, you know, you should be careful, keep your travel to under 180 days or to 180 days in the last 12 months. And you should not never have a problem being admitted to the United States based on your travel history. So this individual also asked, okay, assuming I've stayed 180 days, but mm. I don't want to leave. And yeah, I they seem to have a, a tough situation there with the, well, the DS-160, I'll tell you right now, that's the wrong form. You yeah. would not complete that. That's a consular form you use at the consulate. But the I-539 that they refer to here is the correct form. Mm-hmm. So if you want to file by mail with USCIS to get another six months on as a visitor, yes, you can do that. You can file with USCIS and say, hey, I've been here six months. Give your reasons for stay and proof of financial support and that would justify you staying as a visitor for another six months. And they could potentially grant you another six months without you having to depart the U S you got to be careful though, because you cannot depart the U S. So if you file for an extension of your visitor visa with form I-539, and then you want to go back to Canada in the meantime, you will abandon that I-539 application. So that would be only used in an instance that you're not going to be leaving Canada for at least the next six or leaving the U S for the next six months. Mm -hmm. If you have to travel at all, that won't work for you. The best way to reset your time is to leave and come back, go back to Canada for a little while and then come back into the United States. But again, that, that can be complicated too. Um, Depending on how long you've stayed. Yeah. Depending on how long you have been staying here. And it sounds like here, 
it's and just keep in mind you can't days. you can't file that I five three nine. So for for example, I think the first question we received from this person was a couple months ago. Yep. Um, so if they've already overstayed their 180 days, filing that I-539 is not going to be possible because they will be out of status. This person's also a spouse of a U.S. citizen. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, there's more to this that would need to look be looked into. I mean, hopefully this they filed for a petition for a green card based on that relationship. That's the ultimate solution here for at least yeah. the daughter. For the grandparents that are trying to visit... Well, once the daughter becomes a U.S. citizen, that daughter could then petition you for a green card. Oh, the daughter is a U.S. citizen. The daughter's Canadian, married to a U.S. citizen. But you said that he passed away. Yes. So I'm saying hopefully they filed that petition and they can get green card based on... That's a whole nother... Oh, it gets complicated. It gets very complicated. I'm working on a case like that right now that the... The petitioner died? Petitioner passed away, but it was after the I-130 was approved. Yep. Um, And, you know, it's it's become complicated by the consulate not really knowing what to do with this case. Um, so they attended their interview and the, the kind of neat thing with it was initially the um, Canadian spouse was just coming by herself to be in the United States with her husband, but then her husband passed away. And when that happened, she became eligible to add her daughter under the age of 21 to her petition. So now the mother and daughter are coming to the U.S. not to be with the husband, but just to continue on in the immigration process that they started before he passed. Um, So it's kind of a, a, that turns into a whole other story right there. We just did one similar to this. The U.S. citizen spouse passed away. We did a direct consular filing. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Jordan? I can't remember. Yeah. It was, it was, I think it was Jordan and we were able to get a green card through that marriage. So the consulate in Jordan seems to know what they're doing with those more than the consulate in Montreal is my experience. So a complicated situation and you feel for that family too. Uh, that's a very difficult situation yeah, uh, to certainly. go through. So hopefully they can, they can find a solution to that. They can file that I-539 and stay a little while with her. And th- we just had another one where we did an I-539 because the grandmother wanted to stay and take care of the grandchildren mm-hmm. with their, the newborn. That's a common right? That's a common question. And it was granted. They gave it to her. So You think six months is enough until you see your sweet six-month-old grandchild <sighs> and then you don't want to go home, I guess. Well, my kids are teenagers, so that's a different story. <laughs> you don't want to go home either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another success story. And I'm looking at the, we're looking out the window actually right now. It's beautiful. Uh, I'm just watching the truck traffic on the Peace Bridge and it was all backed up a few minutes ago, but now everything's flowing really good. So speaking of the truck traffic, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Oh, and truckers. oftentimes I look over there, this, this trucking company we represent out of Canada, they, they do a lot of business over that Peace Bridge. And when I'm driving home, I drive under it. And oftentimes I see their trucks on there, but we were able to help this Canadian trucking company expand their business to the U.S. through an L1 and go through that whole L1 expansion process. And then they grew their business in the U.S. And then the U.S. company was able to then petition the owner for a green card through this I-140 petition process. And then we were able to eventually help him, his spouse, and children all get green cards. So it's a, it's a long process. But it uh, was a successful one through the L1 visa, business expansion. Then the U.S. company ultimately petitioned him for a green card. So that's a... And I have one with a similar business model, but the applicant, the, the, the business owner did not listen to us and did not hire any U.S. people when he started his U.S. company here 
a while ago and hasn't hired any U.S. people yet and now wants to extend his status. Good luck. Yeah. Listen to you. And that, Listen to that, your immigration that, lawyer. <laughs> that drives me nuts. We have people that hire us for our advice and then they don't listen to the advice. Or, yeah, they ignore it and they think it's optional. But nope. the reason we tell people we don't to make do up things. The rules. Yeah. It's not so just now us. he's in a tough position. He has a business here in the United States and he doesn't have eligibility for a visa. I'm, we're thinking maybe he can do an investor visa, but it doesn't look like it. So that's a tough situation. Yeah. But if you do it correctly, the L1. Business expansion to a green card is a great option for those that have companies in the U.S. and Canada and qualify as managers or executives. Mm -hmm. It's one of the, one of my favorite options. Other than marriage to a U.S. citizen, it's one of the best ways to get a green card. Agreed, 100%. All right, we're going to finish our, our, our podcast today with this doozy of a question. It's actually a very good one, uh, it's, but it's very lengthy, and it's five questions in one. I don't even one. think I've seen this one yet. Five questions in one. Oh. <laughs> but it's a good one because it covers a lot of the nuances of a TN visa. Okay, so TN, if you're TNs. if you're into TNs and you want to know some some more about TNs, well, this is a a good scenario, good question. So here we go. My husband got a job with a TN visa and I was given dependent visa, which we've discussed earlier. That's a TD visa. I started volunteering a couple at a couple nonprofits. And was offered a job at one of them. So I went to the U.S. I went to get my visa and obtain a T a four a, a three year TN visa as a consultant to to take the job. Well, first of all, good thing they didn't find out you were volunteering for a couple of uh, nonprofits before you applied for that visa because that's unauthorized. So be careful. I'm just throwing that in here. Oh, you, they you, volunteered yeah. for one of them that sponsored. Oh, yeah, that's you can't do that. Uh, so be careful if you're if you're doing volunteer work in the U.S. Sometimes that can be seen as employment. Um, anyway, this individual is then able to get a TN status as a public relations consultant. Started work in the United States in May, then quit the job in September. After learning, um, after not being comfortable working at the the employer, now after quitting, uh, is asking about the grace period. So let's address that one first. Is there a grace period if you lose your job or quit your job on TN status? Yes, there is. There is a grace period of 60 days. 60 days. So if your visa is still valid, you get 60 days to either uh, file for a change of employer, change of status, or leave the country. Now, that only applies if your visa is still valid. If your visa has expired, you only get a 10-day grace period. So it all depends on where you're at in that situation. But yes, there are two potential grace periods. Then, just yesterday, or the other day, we'll say, I was notified that I was one of two finalists for a new job that uh, potentially could qualify for a new visa and was told that it would be a double W-9 position, not a W-2, and they want to know whether or not they can fulfill that employment. First question is about the grace period. We just answered that. Yes, there's a 60-day grace period, to either extend your status uh, under TN, change your employer, or change status to something at, such as a visitor or to depart the country. Question number two. If I lose the TN visa, can I just rely on my TN TD visa, which is still valid? It's not valid anymore. It is not valid is the answer. She did not, men it did not mention in here that they had a TD. So she would need to, if... if 
But you can't have a TN and a TD at the same time. So if she, if he or she, is it? Do we know? know? It's a she. Okay. So if she um, wants to revert back to the TD, it wouldn't be. It'd be a change of status to a TD. It would be a change of status to a TD. So a new validity period on this TD. Yeah, that TDU doesn't automatically on the status. Kick, kick back in if you lose your job on your TN. But she still holds a visa and her passport for TD. Correct. It, it allow you to travel and come mm-hmm. back in, mm-hmm. but you still need to go to USCIS and change your status from TN back to TD. Correct. So you can't just rely on it unless you actually do a change of status from TN to TD. You could also depart the country and come back in and make that change too whatever is easiest. So you don't have to do it by mail. You could leave the country, go to the border, and they could readmit you in TD status as well. Both apply. Uh, some people don't want to leave the country. So that's the I-539 form that we just talked about for that visitor visa. Well, it applies here too. If you're changing from a TN to a TD, you would file that to change status uh, from TN to TD. Um, third question. Can I accept this freelance jobs with my TN visa for all the years I was approved for it? So that sounds like they want to use this current TN that w- they were approved for that is valid for three years, just work for whoever they want, no, even though that employer employment they arrangement can't was be terminated. asking that question. They are. Well, that is not allowed. In other words, can I be self-employed on no. my TN? That's a big no. Big no, no. So your TN is tied directly to the employer that petitions you. They need to be the ones paying you. Correct. You cannot... Be self-employed on ATN. Right. So, so freelance, side jobs, however you want to call it, or an, even adding a new employer, you can't do it under that single TN. If you're doing work, you're doing it for the person or the company that sponsored your TN. That's it. Nobody else. If, they, if you want to do work for somebody else, they need to pay your employer and their employer can pay you. Or you get another TN for that person. Right. You have to have a TN that specifically authorizes you to receive compensation from any employer in the U.S. And if you don't have a TN that authorizes that, then you can't do it. So the answer to that is a big no-no. That's unauthorized work. Fourth question. What would happen if right after my 60-day grace period, I'm I'm offered a job and I take it? Well, if you're outside the 60-day grace period... And you're not able to file by mail with USCIS. That's why it's a 60-day grace period. That allows you to file for that change within 60 days. If you're outside, then you need to depart the country and then re-enter. And then you can file the consulate or at the border before you re-enter the country. But yes, you can after the 60 days. You just no longer have the option to do it by mail with USCIS. So it can be done, but it will require you to depart the country and come back in. Final question. Can I accept one of these job offers I was offered? I'm not going to state what the position is because I don't want to disclose too much information. I'm specially interested in taking uh, one of the positions. Is there a way that I could do that? Or if I get a job as a consultant This is a manager, very convoluted question. the other job? So essentially they're asking if this position they've been offered here would qualify for TN status. And this is a... It's hard to know unless we have more information than that. I'm going to tell you just by looking at it on its face, it's not a TN profession. And it sounds like that's why they went with consultant. 
And that's what a lot of people will try to do is say, oh, this isn't a TM profession. So I'm going to call myself a consultant. Bad idea. I don't recommend work. that. Either yeah. you're a consultant or you're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because your position doesn't fall under TM professions doesn't mean you're now a consultant. That's not the way it works. Right. We don't recommend that angle. The border and USCIS are very familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, they're tactic. wise to that. And for sure. they will call you out. And mm-hmm. they will love to deny you if, if you're trying to do that. So not something we recommend. If if you do get a job offer, however, and it is a legitimate TM profession, absolutely, you can take that job. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot to that question. It, yeah, I'm not it, sure. We need answer, to know a lot more information. I feel like our answer wasn't very clear on that. And question yeah, is kind of convoluted. I know. Maybe we shouldn't have talked about that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was some good stuff in there. Um, we talked about the grace period, changing status, and, and things of that nature on a TN. You can only have one employer. You know, you need a yeah, new Yeah, that TN. stuff's important to know. So uh, be careful. If you, In the end, I think what these questions show is that immigration can get very complicated. And if you are in one of these situations, even if it's a simple one, having a consultation with an immigration lawyer is going to clear it a lot up for you so that you understand what you're getting into. And I would recommend that at a minimum for anybody that's doing anything immigration. Even if you think you have a grasp on the situation, talk to an immigration lawyer to make sure. In the end, we may just be reaffirming what you're what you're doing and telling you you're doing it correctly. Good job. If not, we're going to point out the potential mm-hmm. issues or scenarios that you might run into if you continue down the path you're going on. And with our knowledge, we do this every day, all the time. This is all we do. We're able to spot things that the average person is not able to. We're able to spot things that many other immigration lawyers aren't able to spot because we are so nuanced with dealing with Canadians. So speaking with an immigration attorney at our office will help answer these questions and provide a lot of clarification so you feel comfortable with the process if you want to do it on your own. And if you don't feel comfortable, well, that's a sign you should, you should probably right. work so, with an immigration I mean, attorney. we have that happen all the time. People are doing a case on their own, and then they talk to us, and they realize they had been planning to file the wrong form or were not going to include certain information or didn't know how to answer one of the key questions on the form. And by talking to us, they realized, hey, you know what? Rather than spend all this money on a um, filing fee that may get denied if I don't do this right, I'll just spend a little bit more and get an attorney to do it the correct way and not have to worry about it. And it's not just money. It's a lot of time, Mm -hmm. a lot of time. Uh, And I think that's what most people are concerned about in the end, it seems like, is time. Like, I want to get this fast. When can I get there? Well, if you do it wrong, you're doubling, tripling the time it's going to take. So be careful. Two years can turn into four. Absolutely. Well, thank you for tuning in today and in humoring us and uh, the questions that we addressed for our listeners. If you do have questions that you want to submit, go to our website, submit them. We'd love to answer them on the podcast. Uh, If you have any other questions about U.S. immigration, follow us. We have a weekly uh, email that goes out that contains answers to common immigration questions. We also have frequent updates to U.S. immigration matters. So if you haven't already, please like subscribe and share us with others out there that you think might find this content helpful. Thank you for listening and have a great day.